Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. And as we you know, continue to talk about ways in which we can get broadband to, uh, to, to the various communities, there's a second part of this uh, project, if you will, which is getting uh, people to actually use the, the, the technology. And one of the things that uh, seems to cause policymakers and project uh, teams alike to struggle is, is bridging this digital divide, that, that basically that gap between those typically folks on the lower income side of things, but also seniors and, and rural communities, basically unserved communities, getting them connected and on, online and maximizing the use of the technology. And I have uh, often advocated that we need to be uh, creative. Uh, we need to look for unconventional tactics from time to time because this isn't a case of spending money and, and doing promotions and coming up with nice slick brochures about why you should be on the Internet. There's a lot more involved. and You have to understand the psychology uh, to a large extent of the folks that you're actually trying to reach. So um, a, a couple of weeks ago it came to my attention uh, there's a, there was a project in Chicago that was funded as part of the, the Broadband Stimulus Program, which uh, looks at this issue of digital inclusion. What kinds of programs make sense? How do you get more people both online and using the resource, the online Internet resources, more effectively? And I have invited uh, as my guest today to, to talk about that research and to talk about the bigger issue of digital inclusion, uh, Dr. Karen Mossberger, who's a uh, professor and the director of the School of Public Affairs at Arizona State University. Uh, Dr. Mossberger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here on the show. So digital inclusion, or its counterterm, you know, bridging the digital divide, has been uh, an issue probably for as long as there's been technology, because, in terms of general consumer technology, uh, because basically the te technology is a resource, and resources cost money. And those that have money will better be able to afford those resources and so forth. But we have, you know, that group of folks that, are, that, that do their best to try to close this gap. In the area of broadband, <clears throat> what, how, how does this, this digital divide manifest itself? I mean, what are we really talking about here? Well, it, as you indicated, Craig, research has shown for, um, you know, uh, since the mid-90s now, um, has shown that a number of disparities exist in, in information technology use, in, in Internet use, and there are disparities that are patterned by income, by education, age, race, ethnicity, um, you know, 
gender, depending on how we look at it in terms of whether just someone's online or not, gender doesn't make a difference anymore. Um, it does make a difference for how people might use technology um, or for areas like jobs and information technology. But it's not only these individual level differences. Some of the research that I've done over the years, um, especially with my colleague Carolyn Tolbert at the University of Iowa, who also has done this research on the Smart Communities Program in Chicago with me. Um, some of the research that we've done has also shown that where someone lives makes a difference, that neighborhood makes a difference. So we know for a number of years that there have been differences, um, that there have been rural disparities, for example, in part, you know, less availability of broadband in rural areas. But even in urban areas in, and metropolitan areas where um, broadband is available, we still see these persistent disparities. And as you mentioned, income has a lot to do with this, affordability. Um, uh, we've seen, for example, in some of the national research we've done as well as the research in Chicago, that low-income individuals are more likely uh, to cite income uh, or cite affordability as um, a problem rather than lack of interest in technology. Um, what our neighborhood research has shown, so we've had the opportunity to collect some unique data across Chicago's 77 community areas, Chicago's 77 official neighborhoods. And this was starting in 2008. Uh, and we repeated some of these, uh, it was based on a citywide survey that was done, um, a random digit dial telephone survey in English and Spanish. Um, we had cell phone samples. Um, this was in 2008, 2011, and 2013, and we've been able to see these patterns in neighborhood over time. One of the things that we found is it's not just poverty or education or, you know, these individual level factors for, uh, for individuals that are barriers or, or that are disparities. Um, and what we can see is that neighborhood makes a difference. So someone who is poor and who lives in a poor community is doubly disadvantaged. They have not only um, their own challenges around affordability, but they live in a context where they have fewer opportunities um, to use technology, where um, why neighborhood matters, there are a number of different possible explanations. It might be the social networks that person has, whether they can learn informally about using the internet through others in their social network. Um, it may be the kinds of jobs that are available in those neighborhoods that might not include technology use. Um, there are a number of factors, but we know that neighborhood makes a difference. So living in a low-income community diminishes um, opportunities for learning about technology, for, for being um, uh, an internet user or adopting broadband at home. At the same time, though, um, also 
it has this effect beyond the individual, but influences a lot of issues in communities. So technology can be a solution. Technology can provide information capital for, um, for people to, um, to address problems around healthcare, um, to uh, get better education, to get information about jobs. Um, information technology can provide a basis for economic development in neighborhoods, uh, for providing a lot of solutions to problems that low-income communities face. But then there's this paradox, you know, it cannot, it, it may be a solution, but because of the disparities in those neighborhoods, it, it reinforces some of the, you know, existing inequalities, not just uh, in technology use, but it, it reinforces some of the inequalities that people already have in information about healthcare, about education, about jobs, and, and other resources that they need for um, community development and community improvement for their own quality of life. Um, so we've seen in some of the prior research that neighborhood matters, and um, but you know, the question around programs like the smart communities is whether neighborhoods can be part of the solution too, whether they could possibly provide a positive context for technology use. And this is one of the um, assumptions really behind the smart communities program that we evaluated in Chicago. Um, it's a program, as you mentioned, that was funded by the Federal Broadband Technology Opportunities Program. Um, the evaluation of this, uh, we're, I mentioned the neighborhood level data that we have. We're lucky to have had the opportunity to collect this kind of data to evaluate the program um, because we had support um, uh, from the MacArthur Foundation and also from Partnership for Connected Illinois. Uh, so we have this unique neighborhood level data and we're able and we wanted to address the question do we see change at the neighborhood level um, across the period of time when this program was being implemented uh, there are a lot of uh, well, there are some evaluations of digital inclusion initiatives. There should be more because there are many different kinds of initiatives and, and we really need more evidence. But there are some um, evaluations generally which look at what are the results for individuals who actually went through the program. We've done some of that too. We have some surveys with program participants, both in the skills training and also the training for community groups um, called Civic 2.0, which was um, an interesting and, and unique part of this program. But one of the assumptions be behind the Smart Communities program was that there were going to be a number of different activities um, directed at residents, family net centers, um, businesses, business resource network, uh, community organizations, training on internet use called Civic 2.0. There were youth programs for digital media. 
um, youth summer jobs, uh, youth, uh, youth programs in the schools, and around all of these different activities, there was also outreach in the community. There, was a, um, uh, there were jobs called tech organizers where people did outreach throughout the community around technology use. There were ads on buses and in bus shelters. So there was this effort to create what the smart communities called a culture of digital excellence or a culture of widespread technology use in the communities. With this critical mass and, and uh, programs and all the outreach, um, could this really change internet use in the community? Could it have this kind of community level impact? So in addition to looking at the individual programs, in addition to things like interviews with community organizations, we did this study where we tracked whether there was neighborhood level change over time. And so this program was also interesting um, uh, because it was very much driven by different organizations. So this was a grant that was received by the city of Chicago, um, and it was implemented by the Chicago Local Initiative Support Corporation by Chicago LISC. It involved different community groups in these nine um, community areas. There were nine low and moderate income community areas that were part of, of the program. And these were existing neighborhood-based groups. They weren't necessarily technology groups. They were organizations that had done affordable housing, that had addressed education and health care, different issues in the community. So this was part of this larger initiative of community revitalization. And the question was whether, you know, in and whether leadership by these community-based organizations that already had existing relationships with residents, could this kind of leadership and, you know, again, providing this kind of critical mass of technology use and a, a variety of programs, could this make a change at the neighborhood level? Uh, mm -hmm. And it's really about could neighborhoods provide a positive context for technology use. We know from some prior research done by some economists that um, in neighborhoods where people use computers, it tends to influence their neighbors to also use computers. So again, you know, can you create this positive context? And mm -hmm. so what we found is the answer to that is there was substantial neighborhood change. Um, it, uh, we used some interesting methods um, that were rigorous uh, and, and uh, controlled for some other possible explanations for change, and even so, these results stand up. What we found um, is that looking across uh, five years from 2008, to 2013, we see that there were statistically significant and fairly large changes in internet use in any location, in broadband adoption at home, and in several activities online. Uh, use of the internet for uh, job search, 
use of the Internet for health information and also for mass transit, which is really important in Chicago. Um, so these are also activities online. Uh, one of the reasons for measuring activities online is it gives us some indication not only that people are using the Internet, but what they're doing um, and what benefits we might expect in the future. So what we're able to show now in just the near term, this program started in, in 2010 and um, the uh, surveys that we did after the start of the program were 2011 and then at the very beginning of 2013. That's a short amount of time. We don't know yet whether this means that there's higher employment in the neighborhoods or you know, health improvements in the neighborhoods over time. Perhaps this will lead to those kinds of improvements, but we think it's really important information to know not only that people are going online, but that they're using the Internet to look for jobs, to look for health information, to try to get around the metro area to have greater access. To, to jobs, um, mm -hmm. all of these point to potential impacts for these communities later on. Now, you also, as part of this research, though, there were other communities tracked as well, right? Because the idea was to create um, a uh, was a control group, right? And that mm -hmm. you are looking at. Uh, bringing in these various activities and you test them in the control group and you test them in sort of the neighborhood at large to then measure and to determine your results um, or, or to test your, your assumptions and, and so forth and measure your results and, and, and so forth and so on. Um, this is a, um interesting uh, interesting approach. Now, in terms of the... Uh, choosing the things to track, uh, was that community input that, that helped shape that? Was that determined by, you know, the city or, you know, who established, you know, what were the criteria or the things to, uh, to track? Because I think that that, you know, that process is a very important one. You know, what you determine are the, um, you know, are your controls, are your benchmarks and so forth, are a key part of being able to really come up with valid information. I'm a big person for, for valid information rather than just, you know, random data. So, so how did that all come together? So um, the original survey, the first citywide survey that was done in 2008, um, was done in cooperation with the City of Chicago um, and uh, also was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, in working with the City of Chicago, even at that time in 2008, they were working with some community organizations and with Chicago LISC. There had been a task force 
um, in 2007, a report in 2007, a mayor's task force on closing the digital divide. And there were a, a number of community organizations, public and private sector organizations that had come together to think about how to do this in Chicago. So afterward, um, my colleague Carolyn Tolbert and I worked with the city of Chicago on, uh, in, you know, and people who had been on this task force about what were the important things to measure if we were going to look at impacts in the community. This was even before the federal funding. So that original survey that went out had a number of questions about activities online as well as just whether people used the internet or had broadband at home. Um, I, I had done some research nationally, though, um, uh, where Carolyn and I basically had both worked on uh, some national research where we had talked about the notion of digital citizenship, that technology is important not you know, in and of itself, but because of the activities online that it enables, that being a digital citizen means basically the ability to participate in society online. And people who are not online are excluded from all kinds of information, from all kinds of um, opportunities to really fully participate in society. Um, so you know, while the city and uh, some of the people working on this, what was called at the time the Digital Excellence Initiative, had um, a lot of ideas about um, the goals that they saw for the neighborhoods. Um, this was also uh, something that uh, we had thought about in terms of why technology matters and, and also the need to look at what impact, you know, to have more research in the future about how technology might make a difference, what impact it actually has. Um, once the federal funding, um, well, actually in, in the process of developing the proposal for the federal funding, there were a number of neighborhood meetings. Uh, the communities that were being proposed for the Smart Communities Initiative uh, had neighborhood meetings where people came out to talk about why technology mattered or, or what kind of plan they would have for the community that would include internet use, how internet uh, use might make a difference in their community. So I was able to attend some of these meetings and to listen to people in the neighborhoods and you know, to look at the plans that they had drafted because they put together their own plans and uh, what were their goals for the community. So again, all of these activities online are things that um, people in the city, in the community organizations, others involved in the initiative um, thought mattered for their goals in, in the community. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there wasn't, I'm, I'm assuming, too many, I don't know, preconceived standards for success as much as the main goal was to uh, track and compare results, right? It wasn't like a, um, you know, we're, we're trying to get everybody to a certain level. We're doing these activities more so we can see how 
the levels of interactivity happen within, you know, the nine smart communities as compared to the other communities throughout Chicago? Right. So the standard was to see whether the difference, uh, so we didn't have a certain set percentage, you know, that marked success. But um, given that this was a two-year program, it was a training and outreach program. There wasn't really discounted broadband that was part of this. It was basically outreach in the community and a number of training programs. Um, the evaluation looked at whether, you know, over this relatively short period of two years, whether the smart communities looked any different than the other uh, similar Chicago neighborhoods. Um, and, and, you know, I have to say that we were surprised at um, the level of change that we saw. Um, the change, the differences um, that I mentioned were controlling for other factors, and I want to talk in a minute about, you know, you mentioned the controls. I'd like to go back to that in a minute, but more just on the results. Even when we control for other factors, um, there is between a 9 and 12 percentage point difference um, a, a higher increase in these areas that I mentioned, internet use anywhere, broadband adoption at home, these different activities online, there's between 9 and 12 percentage points um, higher increase in the smart communities than in other similar Chicago neighborhoods. And that's a really, that's a large increase um, in terms of this kind of evaluation research in a two-year period, really. It's a two-year program. It's a large increase. It's not something that, could ha that is likely to have occurred by chance. That's why we say it's statistically significant. Um, you know, controlling for other factors, the, these um, differences stand up. And so let me talk a little bit about what these controls are. A lot of times, you might look at a neighborhood and it looks like, you know, there's a difference. So you might look at uh, program participants or a neighborhood or, or whatever the treatment group is. You, you might look at this and it seems like there's a few percentage points difference. But once you look at um, how the neighborhoods differ or how program participants differ from those who didn't go through the program, the, these kinds of differences often evaporate. They kind of mm -hmm. wash out. In this case, what we had as a comparison group, you mentioned this, we had estimates for 20 different aspects of internet use, activities online, barriers to use, um, um, we had these 20 aspects of internet use and uh, estimates for them across Chicago's 77 community areas. So what we were able to do was to um, compare these nine smart communities with the rest of Chicago's neighborhoods and to control 
for um, changes over time, for um, demographic changes. Uh, we looked at changes in, in um, uh, income, education, race, ethnicity, age across these different neighborhoods. And so what this tells us is comparing the smart communities to other similar neighborhoods, similarly situated neighborhoods, that they had a much higher increase um, in all of these you know, aspects of technology use um, than you would expect otherwise, given um, the characteristics of those neighborhoods. So this is uh, really a large change, and especially given uh, a fairly short program, just a two-year mm -hmm. program, uh, it's exciting to see this kind of change. I think the next step would be to see later on, with some time, does this make a difference at the neighborhood level for employment in these neighborhoods? Does it make a difference for, um, for health outcomes in these neighborhoods? Uh, but that's something that um, could be the next step in this line of research. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, so when you look at this at the conclusion, what kind of um, results, well not no, results not probably a good word. What kind of, uh, I don't know, con uh, conclusions did you come to? I mean, what was it that, you know, you felt was uh, effective for generating uh, broadband adoption? Uh, what things didn't turn out as well as you had expected? You know, what, what, what kind of, uh, you know, you've done all this, you've, you know, the, the project kind of has run its course. What are some of the results? Okay. Um, so there were some things we looked at um, at the neighborhood level uh, that actually um, did not look different in the smart communities uh, compared to the other Chicago neighborhoods. And that was uh, use of the internet for political information, which is important for democratic representation in communities, um, use of the internet for um, online classes or training, um, that did not look different. And actually use of either the City of Chicago website or, um, or e-government websites, and again, access to government services is important. Um, in all, all neighborhoods, but especially in, in low-income communities. And, and we didn't see any differences between um, the smart communities and other Chicago neighborhoods. So they didn't look different in all respects. Um, one of the things that was really interesting, however, is because we had three points where we were measuring change. So we had this baseline uh, in 2008 and another survey, another citywide survey with the neighborhood estimates in 2011, when we originally compared the results for, 2000, for the smart communities with other neighborhoods in 2008 and 2011, the only difference we could see um, was for internet use anywhere, not 
home broadband, but internet use, which could be in a, a library, um, it could be on a smartphone, friend or neighbor's house. Um, we saw significantly higher uh, internet use in the smart communities, but nothing else. No activities online, no broadband adoption at home. And so after 2011, we had um, an initial report where we said, you know, this makes sense. It was a training and outreach program. There wasn't discounted broadband. Um, we know affordability is a big issue in low-income communities. So what we think this program has done then is, you know, um, uh, at least, you know, one of the results we could say was that it looked like internet use had increased in, in these neighborhoods. Um, what happened though, uh, and it was somewhat surprising to us, uh, when we had the final survey in 2013, and this is after the conclusion of the program, it's now a two-year program rather than less than one year of, of the, the program, uh, we see either because of greater length of the program or, or you know, possibly because people who initially went online, got more experience. What we see over time is a larger set of changes in the neighborhood. We see now in 2013, not only is internet use still higher in the smart communities than in the other neighborhoods, but we also see that um, broadband adoption at home is higher. The increase in broadband adoption at home is higher. Now we also see these activities online are significantly higher in these neighborhoods. And to us, that's really interesting. We can't say for sure why that's happened. Actually, the question about why it's happened is an interesting one. Um, there may be a few reasons. For one thing, I mentioned there wasn't any discounted broadband. After the 2011 survey that was taken in summer 2011, by fall of um, 2011, Comcast Internet Essentials got rolled out in Chicago. And the Smart Communities Program helped to promote this. Um, it doesn't cover all low-income households, but it is available uh, $9.95 a month broadband uh, that's available for households with children who are either in the um, free or reduced who are in the free or reduced price school lunch program. So at least some of the families in the neighborhoods would have been eligible for this. We don't know whether um, having access to some broadband discounts is what made a difference. We don't know whether that's because just as people uh, you know, gained experience using the internet and understood its uses and its value more that they found a way to, you know, to afford broadband at home that this convinced them that they needed to uh, have broadband at home. You know, we're not sure what the explanation mm -hmm. is, but it's really interesting to see that over time there's this expansion of, um, of the differences, of the changes that, that we saw and, you know, how they differed from, 
from other neighborhoods. There, there is some research that suggests as people gain experience um, that they engage in more activities online. There's also research that um, we've done and others have done that shows that having broadband at home is uh, related to engaging in more activities online. So, uh, you know, just over time, we see this kind of deepening, again, whether it's because of more experience that people have, because they were able, some people were able to get assistance with broadband at home, um, you know, we're, we're not sure. But it's, it poses some really interesting questions. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting development to see. Mm -hmm. Now, from the research information that you've, you've pulled together and all the things that you've observed, who is then responsible for translating that knowledge into um, activities or is there a way or, I don't know, a, um, uh, some sort of method planned that would allow other communities to benefit from the knowledge that you folks have gained during this research? Well, we're going to have reports online um, that describe the research and, and the findings. Um, let, me, let me back up a little bit about um, other communities. I think one of the things um, to uh, understand about the SMART Communities Program, and I mentioned it was part of this larger um, comprehensive neighborhood revitalization initiative. It was very much driven in each of the um, different neighborhoods by community organizations that had a base in those neighborhoods that had been active and had relationships with residents in the neighborhoods. One of the uh, things that our research has shown is um, that the barriers for using the internet differ across the neighborhoods in Chicago. So um, predominantly Latino communities, especially the ones that are immigrant gateway communities, experience more barriers to, um, to internet use. If we look at what people say um, are the reasons that they're not online or that they don't have broadband at home. Um, there are uh, multiple bar barriers in the Latino communities uh, in, in Chicago. Um, living in uh, one of these immigrant gateway communities means that actually lack of interest is a problem as well as affordability and as well as skill. Whereas what we see in predominantly African American communities is that, um, that the problem is either skill or a lack of affordability. Lack of interest isn't a, a barrier in these communities and we in fact see patterns where in the mostly African-American neighborhoods in Chicago um, that are, are low-income neighborhoods as well, what we see are patterns of internet use but outside the home. Um, rather, so while 
you know, home broadband may be lower in these communities if you just look at internet use period, including public access sites. Um, it's, it's not much lower in, in these communities. So the problem differs, the barriers differ, um, even though, for example, in the low-income African-American communities, people may be internet users, not having regular and frequent access to broadband is, you know, still an, an issue and it affects what people can do online. Um, but still, you're dealing with different problems in different neighborhoods and I think one of the explanations for, um, uh, for uh, the possible, uh, one of the possible explanations for um, the results that we see is that these were very much um, organizations that were rooted in the communities and that understood uh, the different issues in, uh, in, in each community. So, um, however, it's also true that many of the initiatives um, on digital inclusion are place-based. They're usually targeted to a particular neighborhood and so I think this practice of looking at not only what uh, individual participants got out of the program, but whether it made a difference at a neighborhood level is something that could be valuable in other communities too. Um, uh, one of the challenges though is that there often isn't good uh, data at the community level or even data at the city level. A lot of what we have that's available without having someone do a program evaluation and collect surveys, a lot of what's available is mostly at the national level and some of it at the state level. Um, I would like to mention that, um, that along with Carolyn Tolbert at the University of Iowa, uh, I'm part of a project where we will be making uh, data available at the county and city level um, so that communities may be interested in looking at uh, how internet use has changed over time at uh, the county and city level. We will have some neighborhood level data for the three largest cities for New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Uh, we have a grant from the National Science Foundation uh, to estimate uh, using uh, the methods we used for the Chicago studies that I've been talking about. Uh, we're going to be using the current population survey data. It's the um, the national data that's been collected since 1995, since the falling through the net report. So we're using this national data and going to be able to estimate internet use um, uh, and broadband adoption for counties and for the 50 largest cities in the U.S. and for neighborhoods in the three largest cities. So this, I hope, can be a resource for some other communities um, at least to look at what internet use has been over time and perhaps to um, go further later and evaluate uh, initiatives and, and whether this has caused any, any change. 
over time. So even though there are cha- there are differences between uh, and probably within neighborhoods, were you able to, to determine any threads of commonality? Like certain types of programs would work maybe across at least you know several different uh, groups. Um, well, there were commonalities. So um, there was a common set. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the different programs that were part of the SMART communities. So while the community uh, organizations did their own uh, plans for each of the SMART communities, there was a master plan, and there was a common set of, of um, programs. What differed was that um, the implementation, you know, how things were taught might differ from one community area to another uh, because of the people coming in, you know, how to explain things. In some communities, the teaching was done in Spanish, um, but also how to explain things and, and the outreach differed from one community to the next. So how having these kind of um, embedded organizations mattered was for things like outreach. For example, in some of the communities, the churches were a more important part of the outreach. In other communities, it was really the schools that was where um, uh, residents and, and uh, neighborhood groups could be reached. So there was this sensitivity to the community context in terms of what needed to be taught or you know how to do outreach in some of the community areas they found out they had to go back um, and start at the very basics how do you use a mouse how do you turn on a computer whereas in other neighborhoods it wasn't necessary to start um, there was actually a module added in the training with the very basic skills after um, after beginning and, and discovering that in some neighborhoods this was needed. So those are the things that differed, but there was a common set of, um, of programs. So one was the Family Net Center, which was a program that provided drop-in assistance, but also a set of um, training pro a set of courses called Everyday Digital and it went from this very basic training to uh, things like social media to you know using different software programs um, the kind of digital literacy training that that you see in many programs in addition to that which was available for free and in English and Spanish um, depending on the community and, and you know, for all residents. There was um, a training program called Civic 2.0, which was aimed at um, block clubs and, uh, and school groups, other neighborhood organizations, uh, to give them some experience in using the internet to search for information that might be useful, crime data school uh, proficiency scores, uh, e-government to access e-government websites, to research issues online that were important to the community, um, to create a Facebook page or use social media 
uh, for outreach in the community. So that was uh, another set of programs. In addition to those two training programs, those were the two I focused most on in looking at, um, in, I did some surveys with program participants in, in both of those programs, uh, FamilyNet and Civic 2.0. There was a business resource network that helped uh, small businesses or people who were interested in creating small businesses uh, in the neighborhood. There was, um, as I mentioned, these digital media programs for young people in schools and in libraries. So there was this common set of programs. Can we say, you know, this was, you know, this effect was because of any particular program? It's difficult in this kind of neighborhood research to say, in general, you know, uh, to separate to say that the program for certain caused caused the change, but what we've done is we've eliminated some of the other possible explanations for change. Um, uh, we, it, we can't say, oh, it was everyday digital. We certainly can't say it was everyday digital or it was Civic 2.0 that made the difference. We didn't really try to differentiate among these different programs. It was more the argument that having all of these programs and, and word of mouth around the programs, this outreach and as well as training would help to make a difference uh, in the neighborhoods. It, it was as a package really that, that we looked at this in terms of neighborhood change. But, but the other thing is that um, you know, in social science, causation is complex, and to say with 100% certainty, can we say it was the smart communities instead of something else that might have caused the neighborhood change? Well, you can almost never say that with 100% certainty, but what we feel really confident about uh, in terms of these results is we have looked at, could you explain these results in terms of gentrification, that more educated and more affluent people moved into the neighborhoods and that's what's causing the change. We've controlled for that um, in, in looking at demographic change over time. Could you say that it's just all the lower income communities that are catching up to an extent looking at this, we can see that it's true that the places further behind are all to some extent catching up. But we controlled for that and were able to see that the smart communities still had a larger increase even than the other communities that, that were playing catch up. So we um, are fairly confident in these results. But looking at it at the neighborhood level doesn't allow you to say, oh, it was this particular training program or, or another training program within this when there were you know, a whole cluster of programs that were being implemented at that time. Okay. So then a question that comes to my mind then is how do we um, – I have to believe in certain communities there is a desire to have a some sort of coordinated effort to go about the business of of driving adoption and driving usage. 
Um, is what you're saying that that's impossible because of the uh, the very dis- disp- uh, disparate natures of the neighborhoods, or are there some ways that we can use this information, say from Chicago, and you know bring in a group of I don't know a- advocates or maybe the mayor commissions of you know of any town you know commission some sort of program to drive adoption, but I'm still like struggling with trying to get a bridge from I have all this data, I have seen or I can see where certain things are, are, are making sense, I can see where these smart communities are ahead of their uh, counterpart neighborhoods across town, but, but, but I'm still struggling with the how do I create some sort of program so I can replicate that because otherwise, you know, all these folks that are building these broadband networks that are saying, okay, well, we're building a network to drive digital inclusion, but if they don't have an ability to create a game plan that's, you know, with some logical expectation of success, what are they to do? Okay. Um, the Smart communities, actually, even though the federal funding has gone away, um, there is a framework, there are certain courses, certain types of training, especially in the family net centers. There has been some support um, from others in the community, from the city of Chicago, from AmeriCorps, from Comcast. They're working with Chicago LISC to expand um, the family net centers, which is really the resident training, the training for neighborhood residents. Um, That's being expanded to 12 centers now in Chicago. Um, So there is a model that, uh, that they have from this experience. It was really kind of a pilot test of the model of the different kinds of training. Um, uh, and and that's being expanded. I know that Chicago LISC is talking to people in other cities about the courses that they had, the training, again, this kind of experience that includes community outreach as well as training, uh, that they're sharing that with with other cities, with uh, people involved in other digital inclusion initiatives. So I don't want to suggest that um, that there isn't uh, a particular model, uh, but what we looked at was whether this made a difference at, at the neighborhood level. I, I think that they would argue that it was really integrating technology into a variety of activities. For example, the family net centers not only had um, internet training, but they were embedded within um, programs um, called the Center for Working Families uh, that LISC had been working with prior to this. These were programs that offered um, counseling on kind of financial literacy um, that had offered assistance for um, for families in terms of uh, job search or or dealing with foreclosures uh, with dealing with financial problems so 
again, in if, I guess if there is a particular model other than um, you know the uh, you know the particular classes or courses, that model was to embed internet use in other activities in the community for it not to stand alone as something isolated, but to make the connections between using the internet and finding a job or um, you know banking online or finding out how to get better prices, doing more consumer research or, or finding things cheaper online. Um, again, because it was uh, the internet training was held in these centers, a lot of people were there looking for jobs also. Uh, and this, of course, was right after the um, economic crisis, which really hit these communities hard. I think that, um, that one of the things to be learned from the Smart Communities program is that, uh, is, is that internet use was embedded in these other activities in the community. Um, because we only looked at the Smart Communities, and not necessarily a different model, um, you know, an internet uh, training program, for example, that wasn't embedded in these other activities. Um, uh, the neighborhood level evaluation can't tell us for sure um, mm -hmm. that that you know it was embedding internet use in these different activities, but uh, that was part of the logic of the program that that was set up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to, um, you know, to thank you for, for taking time and the going over a lot of this information because it is very important work that was done. And uh, by the way, are you going to be, you're going to be presenting some of this information at Shelby, right, day after tomorrow? Yes, or I will be. Excellent. So that uh, all the folks who are listening to the show, who I'm going to probably see tomorrow or a lot of you tomorrow, um, should also be on the lookout for uh, your uh, your presentation. And will there be a written uh, a docu document made available to the public at large? I know you sent me some information before uh, before the show, but I'm, I'm assuming that ultimately a lot of this will go out on to public sites, right? Right. So um, there is a report that will be posted very soon, um, I think as of today, uh, at Arizona State University. It's um, going to be at uh, http uh, cpi.asu.edu. So that's okay. cpi.asu.edu. And uh, that describes the results in more detail and um, also talks about the program and the neighborhoods in a bit more detail. Excellent. Well, I'm going to have to, to wrap us up here. Um, again, Karen, thank you very, very much for your, uh, your input. All this work is good work and it's all for a good cause. And I look forward to reading the report and I'll make it available to listeners and also folks who follow my blog. So. We'll do our bit here to get the word out. So thank you very much, and I'll see you in a day or two. I'll be, I'll be in Washington tomorrow 
Uh, I'm doing a workshop on uh, some of the fundamentals of, uh, of strategy planning and getting your broadband project off the ground. So any folks uh, who are going to be at Shelby early should check out that workshop. Uh, on Thursday, they should check out um, uh, Karen's work uh, and her presentation. And uh, everyone else, we will talk again soon. Have a great day, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks. Yep.